Hello, I'm Cassie Gillespie, and you're listening to Welcome to the Field, a podcast produced by the University of Vermont's Child Welfare Training Partnership and the State of Vermont. Welcome to the Field is designed for child welfare workers, caregivers, and community partners. However, this season, we will be talking all about uncomfortable conversations, and each episode will touch on a different type of uncomfortable conversation. So even if you're not working or caregiving in the child welfare field, this season might be for you. Here we go. Hello, listeners. Thanks for joining us for our first episode of season three. Today, we're going to be talking about uncomfortable conversations, what they are and why we should have them. But before we jump into it, I want to tell you a little bit about how this season is going to work. So every episode we do will be themed around this idea of uncomfortable conversations. We're going to lean in to topics that we've been taught are not polite or are inappropriate. And we're going to talk about sex, racism, adoption, workplace tension, conflict, and a whole lot more. And as our team was kind of plotting out this whole season and linking them together, we realized that it might be really helpful to have an opener episode, kind of a primer, um, on what constitutes an uncomfortable conversation. So here we are today. I have the amazing Kate Cunningham here in the studio with me, and we're going to walk you through what an uncomfortable conversation is, what happens in your body when you try to have one, and why it's worth pushing through to have one anyway. And be sure to listen through till the end because we'll give you lots of tips and tricks about how to have them more effectively and support you in leaning into discomfort. So welcome, Kate. Thank you. It's really great to be here. And this is my favorite topic, as you know. (laughs) (laughs) Not. Um, It's actually one of my favorite topics. It's not my favorite thing to do. It's totally true. It's funny that we're the people having this conversation because we have such different styles around this. We do. I know. I am the person who doesn't want to step on people's toes and would kind of rather just ignore it and think it'll go away. Um, And it doesn't. (laughs) And I'm the person who cannot settle until I get the hard conversation out of the way. And so then I might inadvertently maybe push someone to have a conversation a little before they're ready. (laughs) And maybe because we've worked together long enough, we've actually had that experience. (laughs) I know. We've worked together for about 15 years, both in the field, in child welfare, and for 10 years, just about at CWTP at UVM. Yeah, we did the math and realized between us we have something like 30 years combined experience and um, I think almost 15 years combined experience supporting the child welfare system. And um, so for anyone who's not familiar with that, what that means is that Kate and I support the workers in the districts. And often that does involve uncomfortable conversations. Uh, But Kate, you also have another role, another supportive role. Yeah, I do. I moonlight, if that's still a term, on uh, (laughs) at the uh, emergency services program, which is the hotline for DCF. Um, And on nights and weekends, we get plenty of calls from um, a lot of caregivers, alternative caregivers, foster and kin caregivers who are, you know, dealing with struggling youth. Um, and there's times we have to talk to the youth. And we support them there through through uncomfortable conversations that they need to have. Yeah, I mean, there really isn't a single component of working with families or youth in crisis that gets to avoid uncomfortable conversations. But for our purposes, we really wanted to structure this conversation around the types of conversations that might happen for child welfare workers or for caregivers. But what I think is really important to note is that uncomfortable conversations come up 
in all aspects of your life, you know, personally, professionally, they're all over the place. So hopefully these same strategies will be applicable for you in a variety of different settings. So to that end, we realized that the first place to start is probably to give a word about the difference between comfort and safety. You can't see me, but I'm nodding at Kate and she's nodding back. (laughs) Give a thumbs up. (laughs) So one of the things that happens in uncomfortable conversations is that folks sometimes, when we're supporting them to kind of lean into discomfort, into a growth edge, people will name up that they don't feel safe. Uh, that doesn't feel safe to give that feedback or they don't feel safe to receive that feedback or they can't um, talk about that with that person. Safety comes into the conversation a lot. And we just wanted to pause right off the bat and kind of name up this idea that everyone has a right to safety. But sometimes, especially when we're activated, uh, most of us conflate comfort with safety. And so as you're listening to this conversation today, please be mindful that if you find yourself thinking of the word safe or using that construct to really check in, is it actual physical or emotional safety you're thinking or referencing um, or is it just discomfort? Because those are those are different things. And we want to encourage leaning into discomfort while ensuring that everyone has safety. It's such a great distinction. And so what do you consider to be an uncomfortable conversation? Well, it could be an actual conflict where something has occurred and someone needs to give feedback. And Kate, like we pointed out earlier, right, when that happens, I'm the person who's trying to resolve it immediately right after. And you're the person who I'm chasing around because you're trying to have some time. Does that feel fair? That sounds exactly right. (laughs) (laughs) But we want to also name up um, an uncomfortable conversation doesn't actually have to be like a disagreement. It can also just be when you're hearing information or taking in any type of information, really, and you start to feel activated. You start to feel uncomfortable. And so what we mean by activation is actually, and this is the definition, ready? Here's my prep from the Encyclopedia Britannica. It's the stimulation of the cerebral cortex into a state of general wakefulness or attention. So what we mean is that idea that as you're sitting, either listening, talking, engaged in conversation, you feel it in your body. It's a body-based reaction. Does that track for you? Yeah, that actually is exactly, I think, just the term uncomfortable, right, um, even implies the comfort level in your body, right? It's uncomfortable in your body. You're having emotions, you're having feelings, and that activation is what actually makes the conversation harder to engage in. Yeah, so for our purposes, both in this episode today and as we move through the season, think about a comfortable uh, conversation as uncomfortable when you start to notice it in your body. And the reason we want to call that out so explicitly is that's the place where people sometimes start to lean into that um get confused about whether it's a safety issue, right? And then there's a bunch of responses that happen when people get uncomfortable. And so, you know, if nothing else you take away from today, let's just start with, it's okay to pause and notice that you're feeling it in your body. And when that happens, you know, what's next? Yeah, it makes me think too of that quote by Emmanuel Acho, right? From um, Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black Man is a book that he wrote, kind of that started with a podcast and then went into a book, and it's it's wonderful. But he says in the very beginning that everything great is birthed through discomfort. And he's so right, right? If we don't move into that discomfort, things don't grow. It's so true, and it tracks with a lot of what Brene Brown talks about. Um, even the neurobiological research and the psych safety stuff that's connected to safety culture, we have to really be willing to be authentic and at times vulnerable 
to have these growth opportunities. So that's a little bit about which conversations we are considering as uncomfortable. But I wonder if it's helpful to give some concrete examples of what those might look like for our listeners. So, you know, I was thinking back when I was in the field, sometimes a conversation would be really uncomfortable if I knew that I was going to have to, like, go out and give family a family some news that their case plan goal had changed, right? Maybe we're no longer looking at reunification, but we're now looking at, I don't know, adoption or some other type of resolution. Yeah, I had a, one um, very concrete experience um, when I was in the field was I went to knock on on a client's door, and I overheard a conversation in the apartment um, before I actually knocked that was a, a danger, um, I heard a, a dangerous conversation, and I had to. I didn't talk about it when I oh. when I went in, and I left and called my supervisor, and we decided, you know, this was something that needed to happen. Again, there was that kind of I retracted right in that moment of I don't know what to do, and um, so I did have to go back in and have that uncomfortable conversation. And not that we overhear things often, but just the fact that we have to have conversations about situations, both that clients are in, that youth are in, um, something that happens with a caregiver, um, you know, even with the youth that we have to address. Yeah, I mean, there's so many, and it's so multifaceted. So in your work, I'm imagining well, we do work together, but in the work that you do at emergency services, I'm imagining at times caregivers are calling, raising up some uncomfortable conversations. Yeah, I think some of the harder ones are, and I think of kind of how do we support caregivers to have uncomfortable conversations is also part of it, right? Like Because a lot of the calls we get are situations where a caregiver may find out that the youth wasn't where they were supposed to be after school and they need to have that conversation with the youth or they've started that conversation with the youth and everyone was so activated that the conversation has gone really poorly. Yeah. And so we're backing it up a little bit. Well, and, you know, also I think that some of the hardest conversations um, are with youth, you know, even for the workforce too. Like if you have to share that for any number of reasons, a placement has to change or someone has to move. There's so many. I mean, we could literally list all the daily tasks of uh, FSWs or the things that caregivers move through in a daily basis and, and pull out what's uncomfortable. But, you know, one of the things that I know we've heard a lot in our work supporting district folks is the idea that when you have those conversations all day as part of your job tasks, it can get so hard to then lean into those conversations with your colleagues, you know? So when you're back in the office and one of your peers does something that is activating to you, it's really hard, right, to have the stamina to, like, raise it there, too, you know? Like, do I really need to address this issue with the fleet car or someone eating my snacks? <laughs> yeah, and I think what happens, again, I think I'll— uh, we're going to talk about some skills and strategies to actually, you know, engage in the uncomfortable conversation in a way that's effective. Because I think what happens is a lot of us will, when we're at our wits end and we're activated from either being in the field or it's the last straw, we respond in a way that is ineffective at getting our needs met and being compassionate towards our colleagues and or anyone else that we might be working with. Yeah, and that's just so tricky because in this in this field, you know, the support that you get from other folks, being in a healthy and reciprocal relationship is so essential to your long-term survival. So, yeah, it can feel really silly to have to, like, problem-solve these small issues, but it's impactful. It's impactful if we if we just let them lie and don't show up authentically to those things. Yeah. Okay, well, so 
listeners, I feel like we've caught you up now, right? You're you're following what we're talking about and what we've defined here. Kate, I'm going to pass this to you. Would you tell us a little bit about what's happening in the body? So, like, what is that activation? Sure. So, and again, I think it's the activation and the emotional response that happens in the body that makes the conversation uncomfortable and difficult. Mm-hmm. And so what happens is with um, when something triggers us, right, a situation, something um, doesn't sit right, our bodies um, respond biologically. And so, and that's emotionally. Emotions are biological responses in the body. They're physiological. What I feel like we, we forget that sometimes. I know, because what we tend to do is we talk about emotions as feelings. And feelings are actually psychological. They're the actual psychological response to the physical, emotional response. And we don't have control over that our emotions, they just happen. But what we need to do is recognize that we're having them. And I think sometimes we get trained or we're practiced or it's society or cultural that we um, downplay them, that we ignore them, or that we consider them wrong or bad. And so we really try to ignore them and pretend that they're not there and they don't go away. Yeah. Well, and the less power you have in the situation, too, right? You're supposed to be more more controlled. Like, the more power you have, you get a little more leeway with that kind of thing. Yeah, you do. And because you aren't in that position of vulnerability as much as you are if you're not the one in power. And so the thing about emotion and activation is I think the first part of it is just noticing that you're actually having it, um, <laughs> really being aware. And again, I think some of us are so trained to kind of ignore it that, boy, you know, somebody said something and all of a sudden I'm feeling like flush and my mouth is dry and what's going on, right? Like I got to notice that and take that moment to actually recognize what's happening in my body because that is going to influence my feelings and then influence my my thoughts and my actions. Yeah, it's that bottom-up psychology, yeah. right? Where we have to attend to kind of our our reptilian brain, our primate brain first. Yeah, absolutely. Because if we don't, we get trapped by it. You know what I know for me is one of the signs that I'm getting a little activated, and I didn't learn this until later in life. When I find myself trying to catch someone's eye, this was even something I think someone said in grad school, like that thing you do where you look at your siblings when your parents are being freaky, and you're like, hey, you see this? Listeners, you can't see me, but I'm doing it. I'm making the She's eyes. Giving me the eyes. Yeah. <laughs> But like, you know, as a professional, that might happen in staff meeting or, you know, I can think of a bazillion other scenarios. But I have now noticed that that's a place where usually I'm activated. If I'm looking to check in with someone else and can you believe this kind of way, something's come up for me. So it's a red flag like, OK, there's some something to do here. Yeah. And just even in that scenario, because I think people will relate to this, that you may be getting activated and look to somebody else in a meeting, say, to kind of like connect and, and be like, whoa, <laughs> we got to connect here because relationships are really what, what life is all about, right? Yeah. And someone else may see you do that and get activated themselves right. <laughs> because they think you're making eyes about something else. They yeah. tell a different story to themselves. For sure. About what's going on. What are Cassie and Kate looking at over there? Yeah. Wh- you should see us. <laughs> the eyes that we're doing. Yeah. It's really complicated. And without having the conversation, 
about the activation or what what the trigger is it's you know that why is my why are my emotions doing this if we don't have the conversation it just builds it's a relationship breaker you know it, it doesn't go away and so i do know that that's why we need to pay attention to what's going on and move forward into that um and kind of identify wow what am i feeling why am i feeling this way and I need to talk about this. Yeah, I think we were going to chat about this a little later in the skills, but I want to bring it in here. Um, the Harvard Negotiation Project and the staff over there, they have a book. It's called Difficult Conversations. I think there's a new issue coming out soon. And we use that at the partnership as the basis for our curriculum on courageous conversations. But one of the things that um, Sheila Heen and the other authors talk about in this book is that there's you know three parts of a difficult conversation. And one huge part of it is the feelings conversation, you know, and so like what is actually happening for you and have you been able to share that with the other person in this conversation? Because all too often, as you were just saying, we don't, you know. Yeah, we let it fester. Mm-hmm. And then the relationship suffers for it. For sure. Um, when we could be actually growing the relationship and getting making it stronger, which we know in child welfare, but w- no matter what your role is and whether you're in the field, whether you're a worker, whether you're a caregiver, whether you're a youth, we need these relationships and we need to, to build trust. I wonder what it would be like if we just normalized activation and emotions in that way, you know? Um, yeah, I think that would be a really cool, really cool idea. But before I jump too far down that rabbit hole, so what gets in the way? I know we're talking about that these feelings are uh, coming up, right, and, and we're tempted to avoid them. Is is that, in your opinion, all that gets in the way of having these conversations? No, there's so many things that go on. And one of the beauties of our brains is that it does a lot of work for us without <laughs> us actually knowing it. And so I think we we can come up with excuses not to have the conversations based on the feelings that we're having without even recognizing that we're doing that. Sometimes we recognize it and sometimes it's just so easy for us to dismiss. Sometimes we won't we won't we can get activated and recognize that something needs to be discussed and talked about but not do it because we're afraid of of hurting someone's feelings. We're afraid oh, yeah. that if we actually if we say something it's going to make it worse even though We'll say right now, it actually is a it's a relationship builder right. um, when you do bring it up. But I think there's that fear. I don't want to hurt their feelings. I don't want to make them mad. Or there's also that that thought that, you know what, I can say something, but nothing's going to change. Yeah. So is it worth it? What's um, really going to happen here? Yeah. Um, it's not my job to say something, right? Either because I don't feel like I have the power to or um, I'm just like, that's the RC's job. They can go have that conversation. I don't want to do that. Right. And RC is a, a resource coordinator for oh, anyone good listening. Catch. <laughs> <laughs> Using my acronyms. And there's the fear of actually, or I don't know if it's fear, but just not having the skills. Like I'm activated and I'm not sure what to do with it. And I don't think I can go have this conversation without yelling and screaming and saying something right. I'll regret later. Well, and I, you know, I'm kind of pausing here to debate how to lead into this, but I think one of the things is not just knowing your feelings, but knowing your style. You know, and Kate and I started that way to contextualize this. I think your family of origin and a lot of other factors can can impact how comfortable you are with, with yelling at people and whether you see that as a safety issue or as like a cathartic kind of interaction, right? I'm, I'm talking with my hands over here while I'm saying this. And I think that just having a real recognition that we each have our own relationship with 
um, the experience of sort of talking through hard things and that it may not feel helpful. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. And I think even just thinking about the difference in styles, like if, if I'm the way I typically approach these is I'm probably too soft. I don't want to like hurt feelings. And when I come in from that, what happens is if I'm kind of skirting around the issue um, for you, your brain's going to be like, oh, this isn't a big deal. Like, right. you know, it's nothing. She'd you're not tell gonna, me. Yeah. You're not going to recognize it as any sort of like feedback that I, that something was wrong. I think we've had that experience where I then stop and say, is this feedback about this? Yes, we have. (laughs) We have. Because I didn't catch it. (laughs) And then what also, I'm just thinking of like what also can happen in that if somebody's too direct. Yeah. And the person receiving that on the other end is, you know, takes it as a threat, right? Like, again, your brain kind of, yeah, you either shut down or you get defensive and and move forward. So you're either retreating or, or getting aggressive. And then the person who's giving that information about, you know, kind of how the, in the conversation, the feedback or about the situation can get all dysregulated themselves based on the regulation. And so you're both kind of mirroring each other in dysregulation and the conversation just doesn't go anywhere. And this is entirely what parenting's about. <laughs> also, I mean, we didn't a little bit for the caregivers talking with the youth and their care. But I think it's, um, you know, these constructs that we're talking about for a child welfare setting, they just play out in so many different areas of your life with your partner, with your loved ones, with your children, with your colleagues, with people that you're caregiving for in your home. It's just so vast. And because we communicate with everybody, right? So really, it goes all over every relationship you have. This can apply to. Oh, boy. Well, <laughs> so should we get into some some helpful kind of skills and tips yeah. about how to have them? Yeah, let's do that. Okay. So, you know, I know I shared one of the kind of three parts of a difficult conversation, and that's that feelings conversation. But there's two other parts. The first, which is my favorite, is the what happened conversation, which I like to make sense of <laughs> as why you are wrong and I am right. <laughs> Also, the the truth trigger, right? Like, yeah. 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 This idea that what I experienced is the version. It is true. And often, if I'm needing to bring it up, I might feel wronged. You know, that from that sense of activation, I may have made sense of that, that I have been wronged or that something you're saying is factually incorrect. Yeah. I think that idea that we're just holding on to our truth is very strong. And I think of, um, there's a wonderful book by Katherine Schultz called Being Wrong. Oh, yeah. She also does a, a great TED Talk, too, called On Being Wrong, I think. But she what did, she asked the question, what does it feel like to be wrong? You know, and the audience is like, oh, you're embarrassed, you feel shameful, you feel bad. And, and she points out that when you feel wrong, you don't actually, you, you notice you have those feelings when it's pointed out to you that you're wrong. But we actually feel right. Even right. when we're wrong, right? <laughs> so this that and that can create the rub between we're both feeling right, right? Yeah. You're wrong, I'm right. Right. And oh, that makes And I'm yelling it out. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And so then the I'll give you the last part of the conversation and then we can figure out what the skills and tips are. But the last part is the identity conversation. And this one's so important because if you play this forward a little bit, it's like in this, let's say, hypothetical argument I'm having with Kate. If I am wrong, if she's right that I am just being angry about this, what does this actually say about me? What does this say about the type of person I am? What does this do to my own sense of self? And so what the Harvard Negotiation Project and the difficult conversations work has taught us 
is that part of what makes a conversation difficult or a conversation uncomfortable is this kind of swirling activation of not only the feelings and not only our sense of what happened and who's wrong, but also how we use those things to make sense of who we are and our own sense of self in that conversation. I feel like you actually see this all the time in equity work, right? When we start to talk about maybe white privilege or white supremacy culture and people will say, are you calling me a racist? Right. It goes Mm. straight to the identity part when, you know, perhaps the dialogue was actually about different ideas. But that person receiving has made it entirely about, you know, what does this say about me? Yep. Who am I? Yeah. So do you want to offer some tips and skills for the feelings conversation part? Sure. The steps are really the first one is to understand um, and recognize that you're actually feeling that in your body. You're having an emotional response. (laughs) So the first step is admitting it. (laughs) It's being aware of it, right? And then admitting it. Then you can move to like uh, saying it, right? Like, ooh, something's going on. Because I think in our busy day lives too, it's like we run from thing to thing, we're doing thing to thing, and we don't always pay attention to what's happening in our bodies. So recognizing it, that self-awareness of, ooh, I am feeling something, I am activated, something's going on here. And then taking that moment to actually pause and say, huh, what's going on and what's the feeling behind this? Because, again, emotions are kind of the basic physiological response. Feelings are how we're psychologically understanding that that biological feeling um, in our bodies. And so recognizing that, recognizing that you're having a feeling, and then trying to identify what that's about. Right. What is what is it like? Is it that I feel like I've been wronged? Is it that I feel like my autonomy has been uh, stripped away? Have I been belittled or undermined? Or do I have this when I feel like, you know, I'm ineffectual? Right. Like, what is it that's actually triggering that? That's driving that. Yeah. The emotional response that's happening within my body. Understanding that identifying it. Actually, there's a, the term of like name it to tame it. Oh, yeah. And and so if we actually call it out what it is and like, oh, I'm, I'm recognizing this. This is what it is. So then taking that pause, what do I need to do about it? What's my self-talk? And, and what's a good way to actually step into this conversation and ask? Basically, usually it's like, hey, do you have a couple of minutes to talk about what just happened? Right. No, that makes sense because I feel like when I don't do that is, well, there's probably a lot of ways it could go. But one of the ways it sometimes goes is I get flooded. Mm -hmm. So I recognize that I'm upset. I don't do anything about it. And all of a sudden, I have to respond to a question, but I can't because I have cry voice. Mm -hmm. And everyone now knows, right? Like it all came out anyway. It, It wasn't a secret. Only now I'm overwhelmed. Or, you know, the other way, you can get really angry about stuff. I do. I'm not saying that's true for everybody but um it's easy to go to those places of kind of being really really tender or really angry as a, as a protective place uh when i haven't taken the time to kind of pause and really check in with what is that what's underneath that yeah absolutely one of the things that the harvard negotiation project difficult conversations book says we should do about that is to share our feelings when possible and i think that mirrors exactly what you were saying is is that idea of naming it to tame it yeah I will say, I think, and myself included, I my feeling vocabulary is quite limited. Yeah. 
Um, and so whenever I pull out like a feelings chart, which has, you know, hundreds of actual feelings that spread out from the emotions, because there's only really, well, there's some some variation in, in beliefs and research, but there's really about six emotions that we mm-hmm. have. And then the feelings come from that. And so I even would suggest like grab a feelings chart, right? We oh, can put it in, the, cool in the notes at the end. Yeah. There's a, there's so many great ones. And be like build your vocabulary about your feelings because I think sometimes we use the wrong feeling for the emotion that we're having that's coming up. Well, and I think we've all been taught that to be professional means to not be emotive, right? And that if we, in that model, when you're recognizing feelings, it's to suppress them, right? And that's not what we're talking about at all. We want to notice activation and notice the feeling in your body with like a gentleness, a curiosity, and maybe a naming if that is available to you in the in the situation you're in. Absolutely. And if you can't name it, that's okay. Just name it whatever it feels like. Yeah. And, but at least identifying that you're having that. And I just, um, super quickly on that note, which um, just thinking about emotions and the activation, there's that, that book, um, it's Burnout by Emily and Amelia Nagoski. Yeah. And they talk in there about the fact that emotions have a beginning, middle, and end. And if we don't actually work through the emotion... It doesn't end. It sits in our body, and that's where we become unhealthy. So really understanding, like, okay, recognizing that, yep, I've got this emotion, and what am I going to do about it? Like, can I move? Can I dance? Can I cry? Can I go outside and yell? Can I, you know, what is it that I need to do to kind of work through this emotion so that it actually goes through me? It doesn't mean that the feeling isn't still there afterwards, but you really need to work that emotion through the body. Whenever I need to do that, I just channel my my four year old. <laughs> yes. She's one of those uh, emotive little little people that doesn't. There's no way out the other end of an emotion for her, but through. Absolutely. And so she models that for me every day. Yeah, <laughs> and isn't that beautiful? It is mostly. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so when we're talking about the what happened conversation, right? The I'm right, you're wrong. Brene Brown has a really fascinating little video on blame. Uh, if you want more about this, that's a great, I think it's like a five-minute little clip to check out. We'll put it in the show notes. But what she talks about there and what the difficult conversations folks talk about is this idea of shifting away from being right to acknowledging what you contributed to the situation. And it could be positive or negative. Likely, probably there was both. But what the research shows is that if Kate and I are having an argument and I genuinely and gently discussing my contribution – I guess it might have felt a little bit aggressive when I came after you and made you kind of problem solve that with me in that moment, that the other person is more likely to feel uh, willing or vulnerable enough to own their contribution as well. And then you get to start having a dialogue about uh, what was true for both of you versus who's right. Yeah. And again, I, I'm going to bring that back to self-awareness, right? Yeah. The more we can I, like take those moments in the day to stop and be like, okay, what am I doing? How am I feeling? What am I thinking, right? And just start to really be aware of ourselves because that's when you're going to pull back and say, like, you know, maybe maybe I was a little tough, right? Or maybe maybe I was a little aggressive there. Or maybe I pushed my point really hard and yeah. it wasn't worth that. Right. And, you know, building right there is this next part, this key phrase. And if you've done work with Kate and I or anyone else on the team in the field, you've heard us talk about it. Separating intent from impact. So, you know, to build off of what you were saying, maybe it wasn't worth it. I might be tempted to say, well, it wasn't my intention. It wasn't my intention to do that. And intention does matter. It is relevant, but it's not the only thing that matters. And so I think when we start to talk about 
impact versus intent and bring both into the conversation, that's a really nice way to start to bring in contributions and how each person affected the other person which, without getting into like a finger pointing kind of exercise. That makes me think of um, Ken Hardy, who did our three-part series on racism with yeah. Tabitha Moore last season, um, talks about intent and impact or consequences. And one of the things I love um, that I think is perfect for these conversations is, is that the person can take an explanation, right? Like you can explain your intent, but you don't want to try to justify it. Oh, right? yeah. Because that's, that's a nice... you still digging your heels in. If I'm justifying why I was doing what I was doing, I'm not actually open up to seeing your perspective. I'm still trying to keep it from my perspective. Right. Yeah. It's a defensive maneuver there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, all of those strategies, exploring the other person's kind of stories and thinking about contributions and intent versus impact, this is really just to get at the other person's perspective. It's an acknowledgement that, you know, most people are walking through the world trying to do the right thing and that they have good reasons for whatever it is that they did. And when you show up kind of genuinely curious about it, you can learn a lot and come to a common place a lot easier than if we are, like, entrenched on our, on our sides. And I think giving people, like you said, giving people grace. Yeah. Identifying that maybe I misread that. Maybe I came from my own point of view, which, again, comes from my culture, my background, my education, my family experience, right? And so coming in from my point of view, I may have completely misread what you were meaning or what right. you were trying to do. Well, and that links us beautifully to that last part, right, which is the identity conversation. And in the very beginning in the intro, we told you the season we're going to talk about sex and racism and adoption and workplace tension and all of those things. And, you know, I think what can happen is it can be harder to be kind of generous, to be giving grace to someone else when you're already all activated because whatever the topic is that came up is something that you are not comfortable talking about, right? You have been taught that this is not polite. This is not professional. Uh, it's not my job to talk to kids about sex. It's not my job to educate my colleagues about racism. It's, you know, whatever it is that's coming up for you. It can be a lot harder. You know, you can't see me, listeners, but I'm bringing my shoulders up by my ears, right? Like I'm all tensed up, kind of ready to go. In that space, once you get into that identity role, it's just so much harder, I think, to take the pause and and be curious and and relax into the conversation. It makes me think, too, of the Brene Brown shame, right? Like yeah. if we're bringing shame into it, it's going to be so much harder for us to take part in that conversation um, in a way that that we will grow and we can lean into that discomfort. Yeah. And so I think when we're talking about that identity part of the conversation, maybe just having a little bit of knowledge, you know, around what part of your identity is getting pulled in here? Is it the part of you that is so dedicated to caring for children that any insinuation you know, from the woman answering the emergency services call that you should have done something different is hard, right? Or any insinuation from the youth you're caring for that you don't care, you know, oh, so triggering. Those are perfect examples. Thank you for saying those, because I do think that's, that is, it's just understanding all of that. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, we need to to recognize what we're bringing in for all of those topics also that you said, and know where we're coming from. And one of the things that I love that Sheila Heen says in a podcast that we'll link to in the show notes <laughs> uh, is is this question for for really kind of genuine perspective taking is what worries you about this? And so now, like all of these prompts, you could do them in a jerk way. That wouldn't be nice. Right. So, you know, it's good to be like, well, what worries you? <laughs> but a really genuine. I'm not sure I understand 
tell me what worries you about this can really bridge that gap between what's going on for me, my feelings, my understanding, my identity, and open the door to learn about what you're experiencing. I think that's uh, that's a great point. All right. So I think that's mostly what we wanted to cover with you all today. If it's all right, I'm going to do a really quick recap just to stitch this all together. So what we wanted folks to know and hear about today is just some basic strategies um, for dealing with uncomfortable conversations. And at the very top, we talked a little bit about making sure right at the outset to do a little bit of a check-in between comfort and safety, right? Is it uncomfortable or am I actually unsafe? And if I'm unsafe, you have a right to safety. But if it's just uncomfortable, well, let's challenge each other to kind of lean in. And then from there, you know, we walked you through these different components of the conversation, the what happened, the feelings, and the identity part of the conversation and I, I would say, Kate, I don't know uh, if this would be yours, but my top takeaway from this whole conversation would be to know that it is normal and okay to feel activated and to use that as information as opposed to something that needs to be suppressed or controlled. Yeah, I agree. I think it is. We need to, I think that awareness, that ability to accept it, own it, feel it, um, identify it is all going to help kind of move through it and get us going. And I think one last thing, just to, again to quote Sheila Heen um, from a, a TED Talk, I think it was. I loved she did say, like, if you're getting there's like a, a researched ratio of kind of positive feedback to critical feedback. And it's five to one. It's oh. kind of the ideal ratio that you want to be at for any sort of positive to kind of critical or um, corrective feedback. And, you know, she said, why wouldn't you think 10 to 1 would be better? Like, the more positive you have, the better. And basically what she said is if you're not, if you're having, like, 10 to 1, you're actually not having good, uncomfortable conversations. Oh, yeah. Well, that makes sense. Yeah, so let's challenge each other. (laughs) (laughs) We need those. We need those uncomfortable conversations um, to be real, to be authentic, because they happen. Well, and that's the bridge to relationship, right? That's what's going to keep us all safe. That's what's going to keep us sustaining in the work and feeling like what we've done is meaningful. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, and we'll see you next time. Yeah, thank you. Welcome to the Field is produced by the University of Vermont's Child Welfare Training Partnership and the State of Vermont. Our theme music is composed and performed by local band Brick Drop, and our sound production and engineering is brought to you by Egan Media Productions. We'd also like to give a special thank you to our in-house technical production assistant, Emma Baird. For Welcome to the Field, I'm Cassie Gillespie, and we'll see you next time.